welcome to Counter Narratives, a podcast about multicultural heritage collections, storytelling, and representation in galleries, libraries, archives, museums, and beyond. This podcast is part of a larger project to highlight the work of the Andrew W. Mellon Cultural Heritage Fellows based at the Rare Book School. I'm your host, Azalea Camacho, and on this episode of the podcast, we'll be talking about how we navigate and unpack counter-narratives in the theme of education and the way that it manifests itself in various areas of our institutions, such as through collections, instruction, and community engagement. But first, we'll start off by introducing ourselves, and then I'll go ahead and pass it on to Ellen to share a story to start off our conversation. Um, So just so you all know, um, we're all professionals in the field of library, archives, and special collections. Um, And I'll start off by introducing myself. Again, my name is Azalea Camacho. I'm the Archivist and Special Collections Librarian at California State University, Los Angeles, um, also known as Cal State LA. And I've been here for about 10 years now, so quite some time. Um, But I've worked in academic and special collections and archive settings for about over 15 years now. Um, And what really brought me to this field is, well, my story is a little bit... um, complicated. So I didn't know right away that I wanted to be into in the archives field. So straight after my undergraduate career, I got a job at the Southern Regional Library Facility um, at UCLA, uh, digitizing journals for the JSTOR project. And that was my first introduction to academic libraries. And then after that, um, thought, well, I'm not sure if I want to pursue this and kind of veered off another way and then eventually find my way back to um, libraries and archives as I got a job as a library assistant at Western University of Health Sciences, which is a a private university in Pomona. And then that's where I kind of got cross-trained in learning about reference, archives, special collections, um, and all of that good stuff. And that's where I also was doing displays, working with students, um, highlighting some of our collections, working with rare books. Um, And that's kind of where I fell in love with archives and special collections and pursued a master's degree in library science, and which brought, brought me to Cal State LA. And I felt further passionate passionate about the career field um, in my job there because I started to engage more with students, with communities um, surrounding um, Cal State LA, which is East LA around that area, and, and saw the impact that archives can have um, not only on students and the research community, um, but the community around uh, Cal State LA, which brought me a lot of job satisfaction that I never had before. So that's kind of a little bit of a tidbit of what brought me into the field. Um, but I'd like to pass it on now to um, our other speakers um, in the podcast, which is Sandy. So Sandy, if you can talk to us about you know your institution and what brought you into the field. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you, Azalea. So hello, everybody. My name is Sandy Enriquez. I'm the Public Services, Outreach, and Community Engagement Librarian at the University of California, Riverside. So kind of similar to Azalea, my path to archives has been a little bit, um, you know, uh, meandering. So all throughout my undergraduate studies, I actually thought that I was going to be a professor and that I'd go into a PhD program. 
But I ended up taking a really long break after undergrad. I took about five years off to work and kind of being in the real world, working in nonprofits really made me hesitant to go into a PhD program. So academic librarianship seemed like a really attractive alternative for me. I could still participate in academia and support students, work with faculty members, get to do a lot of different types of research, but I didn't have to focus and narrow in on one topic. I could kind of learn about all kinds of different fields. So I was really attracted to the field because of that. And then when I was a graduate student doing my library science degree, as well as my Latin American master's program at New York University, I became super involved with community outreach to Latin American and indigenous communities of the area, particularly with Andean and Quechua speaking communities, which is my own heritage. So it was really inspirational for me. It was really powerful to kind of get to work with communities and kind of be a bridge between the academic institution, archives, and community as well. So I got really interested in community archives, critical archival studies, um, outreach, teaching, all of those public-facing areas of librarianship. So even though I am an academic librarian, my roots and philosophies about librarianship really stem from that work that I did in outreach and community engagement with historically underrepresented communities. Hello, everybody. My name is um, Talia Anderson. Um, I am the scholarly communication librarian at Washington State University. Um, I've been here for almost eight years, um, and I also have a very meandering path when it comes to my, my profession. Um, in, in, at university, I was probably mostly interested in journalism. I was really interested in storytelling and the possibilities around storytelling. Um, but for me, that profession felt a little bit uh, challenging, partly because I, I can't drive due to low vision, and I began thinking about other possibilities, which included libraries. Um, I liked the idea, um, as Sandy mentioned, of kind of being in that, um, that area around academia, supporting faculty members and students. Um, and so I ended up doing a program where I was working on a master's in history while um, also working in an archive, which gave me the opportunity to actually process a collection and simultaneously write about it. Um, and I became really interested in, in, I guess, the storytelling that one can find in archives. And the particular um, narrative that I was exploring in my master's thesis was about white women's clubs in the, at the beginning of the 20th century and the way that they were essentially uh, telling the story for the, the surrounding indigenous communities, like in a sense, um, claiming that story for themselves and making it about their own empowerment. Um, and kind of starting from there, I think I um, maintained an interest in archives, even though I kind of have a foot in archives and also I work with um, kind of open access publishing and open access initiatives as well um, in my current, in my current uh, position. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Amalia Medina Castañeda. I am the university archivist at CSU Dominguez Hills, which is located about 16 miles south of uh, downtown Los Angeles. So it's one of the Southern California uh, California State University campuses. Uh, so I came to this field, as everyone else sort of described, by accident, I think as many history students do. I was, you know, very per intent on pursuing a PhD uh, program to become a professor, just like Sandy. And um, I too took a few years off after uh, undergrad, about three years off, and I was 
set on not coming back into not entering academia and sort of taking on a more, you know, regular job. So I worked probably a few regular jobs for about three years until I realized that academics was in fact my passion. So I missed higher education and I missed sort of like being able to learn and being around students and, and faculty in the sort of like scholarly environment. So I decided to go back into graduate school for a history master's program intent on applying for a PhD program after that. But I discovered public history in graduate school in a history program. I was focusing on modern US history, particularly LA history um, at Cal State LA. And um, it was then that I began docenting at a local museum and started uh, volunteering at the Archives and Special Collections there, and I eventually became a student uh, assistant in the archives. So while docenting at the the museum and at the same time, you know, working in the archives, I sort of became really interested in the background and invisible work of cultural heritage professionals. The Black Lives Matter movement had really picked up again after the murder of Mike Brown, which was literally the month before I started my history uh, graduate program. So for me, it was an especially pressing time to be studying history. My classmates and I were like energized. We were angry. You know, I found that connecting history with the with the public was my passion. And so that following year, I co-curated an exhibit about the Black Civil Rights Movement in Los Angeles at the Museum of Social Justice in downtown. And that coincided with the Charleston church shooting. So we were just documenting history and making these connections for the public in very real time, right? We made these sort of last minute decisions to change exhibit and to include all of that. So I just became really passionate about the background research that went into exhibitions, not, you know, and not necessarily the mounting process, right? I was sort of the more, the research person, right? I was intrigued at the idea of preserving the artifacts and documents that went up on the walls. So I think that's where the archivist uh, aspiration came in. I, I love the research part and teaching and outreach. So I quickly pivoted right from you know being a history professor and found that I can essentially do a lot of the work that I was more passionate about by being an archivist, right? And still, you know, staying in academia and teaching students, working with students, and. Um, and still potentially pursuing a faculty position, right? So, you know, of course, after many jobs, uh, unpaid internships, <laughs> it was about a seven-year journey before I secured a tenure-track position as an archivist. But um, here I am, and you know, working through it, and really finding that after, you know, it was probably been about nine years since I entered the archives profession, and all these little pieces that I picked up over the years are sort of coming to, all all these ideas are coming to fruition and I'm able to put a lot of my, um, a lot of what I've learned into practice, especially at at a campus, being an archivist at a campus like mine. My name is Ellen Ricotola and I'm the Evening Supervisor and Archives Manager at the University of Hawaii School of Law Library. Uh, My path through this work, like many of my colleagues here are, is very um, meandering and I also didn't know about librarianship I started off as a mentee for video production for community uh, television called Olelo Community Television. And I was an apprentice to be a video producer and editor. Um, And um, with that work, I was documenting a lot of community social movements, Hawaiian sovereignty issues, anti-war. And so it was just really exciting to be in that environment and documenting these um, rallies and speakers. Um, and I was an undergrad at that time. And then um, 
after I graduated from undergrad, I went to AmeriCorps VISTA, the Community Technology Center VISTA program. It's like a AmeriCorps, but Peace Corps in America kind of thing. And I was stationed at a um, nonprofit in uh, San Francisco called Hon Homeless Prenatal Program. And I was doing more like technology, bilingual technology education, Spanish and English. And then um, that experience helped to pay for my graduate studies in cultural anthropology in San Francisco. Um, and so after I graduated from there, I was looking for jobs. It was the 2009 dot-com boost and a bomb, you know, there was a major economic um, downturn at that time. And so it was hard to find work, but I did find work at the Manila Town International Hotel, which was documenting the anti-eviction movements at the uh, Kearney Street International Hotel, Filipino, Asian, Chinese communities being affected there. And so I was, that was when I started to work with archives because they had amassed community archives of their anti-eviction movement history. And so I was um, had the opportunity to help to uh, catalog a lot of their um, photos, their audio histories, their documents. Um, and then after that experience, I started to meet with scholar archivists at uh, UCLA. Um, Anne Gillilin, Vivian Wong, and they came to uh, the International Hotel to look at our community archives. And so they told me about the program at UCLA. And so I applied there. And that's how I started to study archives in, in further depth. So that was my sort of academic career. But I think a lot of my interests uh, that I still carry over from the beginning of my uh, introduction to this kind of community history work uh, continues at the law school, at the law library, where I um, interweave a lot of the histories of Native Hawaiians and the immigrant history in Hawaii to talk about modern Hawaiian history from around 1850s to the present. I also lecture for the Department of Ethnic Studies at UH Manoa as well. So that's where I'm at. Thanks for sharing, Ellen, and thanks everyone for sharing your amazing introductions. It's it's nice to see all the common threads that we all have um, and how we entered the profession um, and then how we're part of this fellowship, of course, which kind of ties us together as well. Um, so the next segment of our episode is for Ellen to tell us a, a story that she has in the archives to kind of ignite our conversation. Um, so go ahead. Take it away, Ellen. <laughs> Thank you. So here I go. A counter-narrative is a story, history, or experience that goes against the mainstream understanding. A counter-narrative I learned at the University of Hawaii at Manoa is that there was no real treaty that annexed Hawaii to the United States. The Hawaiian Kingdom legally exists, but it is currently occupied or colonized since its overthrow in 1893. The American businessmen who conspired the overthrow turned Hawaii into a republic in 1894 and lobbied the United States to illegally annex Hawaii in 1898. Hawaii became a territorial government of the United States until 1959 when it became the 50th U.S. state. But despite all our current institutional operations, there are counter-narratives that remind us we are living under legal fictions imposed by U.S. settler colonialism and imperialism. This impacts me as an archives manager at my law library. I am negotiating how to hold indigenous Hawaiian histories in relation to settler, immigrant, non-local histories that also exist here. 
There are advocates that care for local places and peoples, but we also engage with national and global issues that affect us too. The Law Library holds this counter-narrative between Native Hawaiian history and of U.S. statehood in the archival collection of the founder of our law school, William S. Richardson. He was a mixed-race Native Hawaiian man who stood differently from other Native Hawaiians because he embraced statehood, while others opposed it since it was moving away from reinstating their national sovereignty after the overthrow. Richardson experienced racial and class discrimination under the territorial government when it was mostly controlled by an oligarchy of Euro-American agribusinesses. Many of Hawaii's water resources were rerouted from Native Hawaiian ancestral lands for taro and fish pond cultivation to irrigate monocultural plantations owned by settlers in the drier parts of the islands. Many immigrant groups from Europe, the Americas, Asia, the Caribbean, Oceania, and around the world came to work in these plantations because of the globalization of European businesses and imperial interventions that destabilized non-European migrants' homelands. The plantation was a racial hierarchy. Everyone was paid differently according to race. Lighter skin paid more than darker skins with accents. In addition, diverse workers were separated into racialized camps so they would distrust and dislike one another. But over time, the workers developed pidgin, Hawaiian Creole language, to communicate with each other. This helped form relationships between workers into labor movements that would eventually challenge the white planter oligarchy. Richardson was guided into places of power. Before U.S. occupation, his ancestors served the Hawaiian Kingdom government. He was encouraged to study law and entered into the Democratic Party in the 1950s and became the Lieutenant Governor of the State of Hawaii in 1962. The talk of turning Hawaii into a U.S. state united his generation to believe it was a way out of the territorial government which suppressed Native and local immigrant voices. He and many in his generation had faith in the rising civil rights movement in the United States because it inspired them to push back against the domination of white supremacy over Hawaiian society. But U.S. statehood would mean that the U.S. would control Hawaii's lands and politics by integrating them into its military and economic system, while allowing Hawaii to send representatives to Congress. In 1966, Richardson was appointed the 16th Chief Justice of the Hawaiian Supreme Court and drew from Hawaiian Kingdom law to establish the Public Trust Doctrine to protect water and public lands from corporate control. In 1969, Richardson pushed for the creation of the law school so more people of Hawaii could continue pursuing rights for minoritized groups like the elderly, Native Hawaiians, immigrants, racial groups, and the environment through legal education and research. Today, debates of what is Native sovereignty and settler responsibility underlie Hawaii culture and politics. But Richardson's story is one of living counter-narratives, being an indigenous leader during a time of rising U.S. imperialism in the Pacific. His vision was that the peoples of Hawaii would need educational opportunities to be supported in the long work of justice in our islands, region, and world. Thanks, 
Ellen for sharing um, the collection of um, William S. Richardson. But I do have a question for you because this kind of came in mind when you're talking about how as an archives manager, and this is for everybody uh, that's on right now. Um, so as an archives manager, you said that you're negotiating how you hold indigenous Hawaiian histories in relation to settler immigrant non-local histories that also exist there. So I'm wondering, how do you put that into practice in your everyday? Like how, and this goes for questions for all of us, because I think we all kind of struggle with negotiating these with the, um, you know, his, indigenous histories um, and how we negotiate and, and bring this into our everyday. So I'm just curious about that, if you can talk about that. Yeah, I think, um, well, I, there's a lot of reading and research engaging with a lot of contemporary Hawaiian scholars and um, immigrant and um, settler scholars that are talking about the political history of Hawaii, the economy of Hawaii, and the frameworks of settler colonialism. And, um, you know, these frameworks help to just describe the power structure in Hawaii. And you can see how, um, you know, before U.S., uh, control of Hawaii, there was a Hawaiian society, a native Hawaiian civilization, and they had their own government. And then that government evolved during Western contact with the trading that was happening in the Pacific since the 1700s. And so the Hawaiian kingdom was already evolving to kind of uh, be kind of like the modern nations of today. But then the history of the overthrow was the, the moment of this imperial attack on Hawaii. And then when the United, uh, the American businessmen started to increase their control over Hawaii's lands and, in, you know, create plantations, and you can see this capitalist, settler colonial uh, phenomenon happening. So these kind of historical um, literature that currently exists become cited as a kind of framework for me to think through how the different archival material in my collection, either if it's Chief Justice Richardson's papers, I can see, you know, how to relate certain moments in his life to this historical process that's documented and that's already been scholarly produced. Um, I also bring in community experts and community leaders to exhibits. For example, I did a race, labor, and indigeneity exhibit um, in 2000, I think, two, and we brought together Native Hawaiian um, labor organizers with immigrant Asian le labor leaders or academics. And we talked about, you know, this history of Hawaii and, and how right now my focus is on working class history. So um, just trying to bring together the thinkers around um, um, Native Hawaiian sovereignty, independence, but also with working class immigrant histories uh, as a way to sort of bring together what I consider our siloed stories that we hardly talk to each other and so to kind of start to create opportunities through exhibits for these conversations is something that I'm interested in right now. I would say similar to what Ellen's saying um, for myself I am curating an exhibit this spring on indigenous languages and so this is something that I've been thinking a lot about is how to bring in um, voices from the community into that exhibit. So one way that I'm doing that is kind of is offering like a sneak peek of it or like an info session, um, just showing the types of materials that I'm planning to display and kind of getting feedback from the community. So exactly what Ellen's saying, like just bringing in, like creating space for others to give suggestions and input. And then also coming from the UC, the University of California, um, there's recently been some new policies regarding how we can use materials from indigenous communities in research and in teaching. 
Um, so UC has its own Native American cultural affiliation and recreation policy. And that the biggest change that came this year is that we can no longer use any sort of cultural heritage material in teaching, outreach, or research without input from the community. So in my case, here at uh, Special Collections at UCR, we have the Rupert and Jeanette Costo uh, papers and archives. And Rupert Costo and Jeanette Costo were Native American activists, scholars, philanthropists, and they donated um, a large collection of baskets, woven baskets from California indigenous peoples. But we do not have a lot of information about these baskets, who made them, what was the um, you know purpose or occasion that they would be used from, what were they made of, when were they made. So when we have this missing context anyways, there's not a lot of ways that we can use them in outreach and teaching. So the new policy you know, would require us to reach out to community members and get their input before we could use those materials, which I think is great. It's ways that academia is holding itself accountable and making sure that we are doing the work of reaching out to communities first before we try to speak on those materials or make those materials accessible. Oh, and one other thing, if I can mention, um, I recently taught a class for a professor that was doing um, a class on decolonizing English, so kind of like the study of English. And so I just want to say that it's really great that so many faculty members um, are kind of bringing in these conversations in like embedding them into their courses, because it gives us as librarians and archivists a way to sort of bring in those conversations through the lens of archives. So, you know, whereas sometimes when you try to bring those conversations in and the class isn't already talking about it, it can be a little jarring, it can be a little more difficult um, to kind of bring in those those terminologies and those um, perspectives. But when it's already embedded in the class and we're just sort of expanding the conversation and having students think more critically about how they're engaging with these materials, it's really awesome. It's opening up a lot more opportunities. I would say I've had the same experience at Cal State LA with the professors. So I do a lot of um, teaching and instruction with primary sources in our collections. And they have been <clears throat> bringing more awareness of not only doing research in an archive and how to include that in your paper, but like ethical concerns, how we collect things, um, um, working with community archives, they're bringing that into the conversation. I'm actually doing an English class next week um, that is working on, you know, the research side or being an English graduate student and then how you conduct research, but also how do those collections come um, to uh, uh, special collections and archives or a university and how, what is our collection development policy? And so I'm bringing a little bit of that part on my expertise on us really working with the community because our mission and vision at Cal State LA is really working with the community. We don't have a budget to purchase materials. So it's engaging more with the community, not only to, it's not about extracting collections from, you know, them, but also understanding that they have an expertise and knowledge of like LA history um, and working with them to do these community engagement um, events. And um, I just had a meeting with a, a community organization yesterday. So I think those are important conversations that ha are happening now in the classroom, as you mentioned, Sandy, um, and also happening within our profession on not you know, just having these collections, but how do we really engage and create an impact with community or the archives that we hold? So for me, this this conversation makes me think of another divide that I often have been thinking about in the last 
few years. Um, and it's kind of, um, as opposed to thinking about settler colonialism versus native cultures and communities, um, I've thought a lot about um, kind of accessibility of collections, so divides between um, disability and a kind of ableist construction um, around the archives. And uh, for me, I, I think ironically, this is something that I've only, I, I'm not sure why it took me so long to think about this because um, I, I, was, I was born blind, I had low vision throughout my life, um, and yet I didn't necessarily think about how that would or could impact my professional practice. Um, but when it comes to archival collections, there are lots of ways um, in which those collections might not be accessible to communities that have disabilities. Um, and just one example that a colleague and I have recently discussed a fair bit is, um, for instance, in our digital collections where um, for people using screen readers, um, ContentEM and some of these kinds of platforms really don't have any um, any way to add alt text or alternative text uh, for people using screen readers. Um, so for images, image-heavy collections, there's no way for people to necessarily have a description of that um, if they're not able to see it visually. Um, and so we were thinking about a project where we might have students think about how they would describe images um, in, in a class setting and thinking also about ways that that could encourage students to um, consider the bias in the ways that they describe, let's say, another person. Um, and, um, and also even just how much, as a society, we default towards favoring vision and eyesight and kind of create systems that exclude other people who are not able to make use of that um, in the same way. Um, and so, yeah, for me, that's, that's just kind of something that it's a slight deviation, but it's also something that comes to mind for me when, when talking about um, kind of occupying this space in between, um, in between cultures in a way. Thanks, Talia. That's a really important point. And I love the idea of having students consider how they would describe images in a classroom. And I think it's a great way to talk about these larger issues of accessibility and inclusivity from a more concrete, hands-on perspective. I'd like to go back a little and reflect a bit on the story that Ellen shared. Your story really resonated with me, Ellen, because it kind of reminds me of a similar story that I've encountered here in the archives at UCR. It made me think of the story and the legacy of former Chancellor Tomas Rivera. Rivera is most remembered for being the first Chicano uh, person to hold the title of chancellor in the UC system. And in fact, I think he was actually the first person of color in the U.S. to hold that title. So it's rightfully seen, you know, as a huge accomplishment by the community and UCR as a whole is really proud of it, rightfully so. But when we only ever focus on the accomplishments of these prominent figures, we tend to forget the struggles that they faced as well. And Rivera faced a lot of hardships during his tenure as a chancellor. If you listen to the oral history that his wife, Concepcion Rivera, uh, recorded, she mentions how people were so happy to see him in that role, but many people were also unhappy with him in that role. And she talks about how Rivera never really wanted to be a chancellor in the first place. He was recruited. He didn't apply directly for that position. But when the opportunity was offered to him, he knew that he had to take it to help pave the way um, for more Chicanx and Latinx peoples. 
So at his core, he was really a scholar, he was a poet and a teacher, and he really missed having that one-on-one interaction with his students. Um, And I think he also had a lot of difficult decisions to make. Um, Folks tend to forget that he was the chancellor who dismantled the Chicano Studies and Black Studies programs at UCR in the 1980s. And according to his wife, it was super painful for him since he himself was a Chicano uh, activist. So I just kind of wanted to share that as another example of the ways that counter narratives can manifest in this theme of education. Sometimes we see these important figures who helped pave the way as one dimensional stories of success. But so often the struggles that they faced are just as important as their achievements. Going back to, to the thoughts about um, ethical considerations, you know, that's not something that I've necessarily intentionally embedded in my lesson plans because the classes that I've been teaching are very introductory. Um, but just actually the other day, a student, you know, it was a class on the feminist movement and we were looking at zines. So it was a upper division women's studies class. And uh, we were talking about, you know, zines and whether they were artifacts or not. And of course, the students responded, yes, they were. They were in the reading room and they were in these beautiful boxes and perfectly organized. And then I said, well, what if I take it out of this room and, you know, and you find it by a trash can at the Carson Park, right, across campus. And then, you know, the wheels started turning, right? And then we sort of went into a conversation about, you know, curation and, you know, subjectivity and all the decisions that go into, you know, making the materials uh, appear here in the archives within the confines of these spaces. And uh, one of the students asked, like, you know, where we acquired it. I said, that's an excellent question, right? And that sort of stemmed a conversation about like rare booksellers and a lot of where, you know, and how these materials that are now like the materials of our of our generation, right, of our communities, right, now they're sort of popping up in these spaces and they're perfectly curated and, you know, some institutions are, you know, now they want to acquire these voices and sometimes the way that it happens is not exactly the most neat and perfect way. So... Um, I think the students themselves, I think, are thinking about these things. And I was just really surprised that she brought it up. And I was like, where do I start? You know, I was like, I I don't know. You know, I haven't been here um, in this archive myself for that long. So I was like, I didn't have the accession record right in my at the top of my head. So I said, I don't really know, but this is what happens. Right. And I don't think our institution um, is guilt free. And maybe in, in what we've done in the past, right, maybe we're sort of all in a sense uh, guilty of some of these like practices, like right? historically and some even in the present. So, yeah, for for me in particular, uh, collection comes up because I do struggle with a little bit about, you know, why we have it. And like, I mean, I get why we have it. So we have a collection of Mesoamerican artifacts which is a completely different kind of collection that's not really in a special collections and archives. And I'm an archivist, so I'm used to working with paper-based materials. And so to be the person to take care of these items, to me, is a little... It's daunting, really. So I had to educate myself um, and uh, get a curator to come... Um, talk to me and give a workshop not only to me but our staff and our student assistants about how to care for these items and then the curator she's she's from the um, Natural History Museum in in Los Angeles and she works with these types of artifacts like on an everyday basis so 
for me, it was thinking about, well, where are these collections from? How were, I mean, I know who donated them, but like, how did he acquire them? And those types of things came into mind. And I've even been approached by students, um, students in MLIS programs to see like, what were the ethical considerations that we, that took place in, in acquiring this collection. And sometimes I'm like, I think about it and I, I was part of the process, but that was a process that happened at higher levels than me. So of acquiring the collection. Um, but then I'm the person that has to manage and this collection is meant for instruction. So I'm still like struggling with how, how to answer those questions because students think about these things. Um, and as I give tours, you know, it seems impressive. Oh, Mesoamerican artifacts. But where do these, you know, collections come from? How were they acquired? Who acquired them? How, how did they get to Cal State LA? And who made this decision for them to be there? Um, and so I'm working through that as a professional <laughs> um, because I feel like I'm always um, hit with these kind of um, things on a, not on a regular basis, but they happen and I have to have these uh, I'm working as I go and trying to figure out these conversations to make sure that I am making the right by these artifacts and, and other collections that we have at Cal State LA and how we acquire them. And so for me, it's been really big deal, especially working with community organizations now to let them know you don't have to donate your archive to an institution if you can create your own archive and keep it within your community and, and giving them those tools versus you know, being like, oh, we can house it at Cal State LA. I mean, if they would like that, that's a different story. But I like to tell like the whole, I, the ins and outs of what that really means when you donate it to an institution and the possibility if they have the capacity to store them within their own organization, that that might be a good option to have scholars go to their city of these archives that that's about their community. You know what I mean? If they want to go to do research with those materials. So, so that's like something that I constantly kind of think about on, on a daily, how I operate as a professional in this field to do right by the communities that I work with and the collections that we hold. I did wanted to share that it's so heartening to hear that you all are also engaging students in those important conversations about how these items were acquired, where they came from, because that's something that I strive to do as well in my classes. Um, I usually have like a handout and one of the final questions after students have kind of analyzed in a material and learned, you know, who made it, what era was it from, what is it made from? is does this belong in the archive? And I think that it sounds simplistic at the surface, but it really does start that conversation and get down to the, um, you know, the roots of kind of the, the history and the legacies of archives and how materials end up there and what deserves, quote unquote, you know, to be in the archives. So I think this isn't something that I hear talked about too much in the field is how to start those questions in kind of a primary, you know, source literacy class. But it's great to see that there's others in the field trying to start those conversations. I was thinking a lot about um, a chapter I read and it was in uh, Michelle Caswell's recent book. And she was talking about, you know, the need to challenge like the white racial progress narrative. And I think about that all the time, especially at our campus, right? Like you were saying, Sandy, about the, uh, you know, first Latino chancellor. Like 
we've historically have had, you know, black presidents at our university for, you know, the last few decades and a lot of the you know, black and brown leadership over the years. And it's almost like we the meta narrative of our campus is that the, it is just progressing then that it is improving. And as a campus that is centered in South LA, we're in the middle of gentrification, like our students literally can't afford to live by campus. Our students can't even afford to come to campus to park and then food has gone up 20, 30%. So all these issues are happening in real time. And here in the archive, we are sort of uplifting this like, you know, progress narrative. So I think it's just more complicated than that. And um, especially as I'm actively like, you know, collecting university records, I'm, I'm, I think about that just all the time. And in these classes, like the women's studies class where the students bring up these topics themselves, it's just a really exciting time to open up those conversations and even like critique our own institution in a constructive way and the reading room and the space and the inherent exclusivity of it and how it makes them feel. And then they can confess that, yeah, this space feels intimidating or doesn't feel like I, I meant to be here. And it's just like, I, I love when they cut, when they reach these conclusions on their own, because I teach 90% students of color, 90%, right? Our campus is 69% Latinx and about maybe 10 to 10, about 10, maybe 15% black, right? And so, I mean, in this class that I described, um, the class on the zines, it was literally entirely all women of color, right? All black and brown women. So um, I feel also like I have the sense of responsibility in these spaces to my students um, to be constructive, but also to be honest and open. So... So I just want to say that these are real-life examples of challenges cultural heritage professionals face when working with multicultural collections. Even as librarians and archivists from marginalized identities, we are often forced to function within environments of institutions that perpetuate some of the dominant narratives that we personally fight against. We may not have a solution or answers through this podcast. However, we would like to ignite conversations within our profession to bring awareness of these challenges. And that wraps up our talk today on counter narratives. We want to thank our guests uh, for being with us today. Uh, this episode was brought to you by RBS, Mellon Foundation, all of the guests across the different time zones, Ali Alvis, book historian and cataloger at Type Punch Matrix, and our podcast media consultant, Kelsey Brown. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Counter Narratives. Until next time, take care. Bye-bye.